Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, church. Morning to our friends and guests with us today. You know, when I was just thinking about the fact that we're in Romans chapter 14 in this incredible letter, the book of Romans, the gospel of God, I don't know if um, I made a correlation between our church, any church for that matter, and the Special Olympics. It's an interesting thought that came to my mind in thinking about this text in the church. I was able to do a Special Olympics Several years ago, I don't know if any of you as a volunteer have ever participated in that before. It's a special thing, and I, I like the idea that there's a guide, there's a person, a healthy person that is helping a person with some physical challenges, handicapped in some way, and they're helping them to finish the race, to cross the finish line. And that wasn't easy for me because naturally, I'm an impatient person, and when I'm with someone in that situation, I tend to speed ahead. Just even, we walk anywhere with my wife, she'll tell you this is a pet peeve of hers. I'm always walking four steps ahead because I'm a fast walker, and she's like a normal walker, but I'm just fast, and, and she'll remind me, you know, you want to wait up or, you know, something like that, and you know the feeling, right? Can you relate, some of you? And in the Special Olympics, you like have to wait for the person. You guide them, you slow down even if you're faster than them, and you wait. They wait for everybody, no matter how slow, to cross the finish line before the race is over. I think that's a picture of the Christian life, the Christian church, as we've been learning from chapters 12 to 14 of Romans, that a a strong brother could very easily just kind of stride ahead of another in their walk, but love doesn't permit them to do that, and they're going to slow down to help their brother and sister finish the race. You know, it's like here as one of your shepherds of this church, we try to accommodate and serve the weakest lamb among the flock. And in a similar way, all of you in this room as Christians, you should be able to regulate your freedom to take into account the weaker brother or sister by faith and help them across the finish line. And that's never easy, but that's the way of love. In fact, Paul's emphasis in this entire section of Scripture, from the beginning of this chapter to the midpoint, as you're going to see, of 15, is on the responsibility of the strong in the Christian faith to love the weaker one. That's how unity, which has been a huge emphasis of Paul's writing, that's how it shows itself and makes a community of faith work. Chapter 14, verse 19, last time, Pastor Alex showed us that we're about building each other up. And then today in this text comes a very hard exhortation that we're not to tear anybody down, tear them apart, or mess with their conscience because we love our Christian liberty that much. So when you're thinking Christian liberty, having freedom in Christ, you have to have your priorities straight. So that's a big learning opportunity, I think, for us. Namely, yes, the strong believer should grow in love. That's part of the lesson here. A weak believer needs to grow in their knowledge so they can grow in faith. So they don't always have to be a weak brother or sister. That's good. That could be a priority. Additionally, the stronger brother needs humility for the sake of unity. Hey, I'm strong. Let me not get carried away with that. The weaker needs maturity, again, for the sake of unity. That's a great priority. But this text suggests there's even two greater priorities I'm going to share with you in dealing with freedom. Here they are, the priority of brotherhood and the priority of conscience. Priority of brotherhood and the priority of conscience. And before you and I kind of jump into Christian liberty, being free to think and say and do all sorts of things in the name of Christ, you better be sure, according to this apostle, that you've put the love of the brotherhood and the conscience first and foremost. Let's pray. Again, Father God, we just ask that 
would be your will that the Holy Spirit would do so much work of application today, even more than usual, because we're dealing with so many different issues of application that obviously your word would not be able to deal with historically. We have the principles, the general truths that will guide our application of this incredible section of Scripture. But we need the Spirit, Lord. We need your Spirit to guide us and teach us and make personal application to us today before we even walk out of this room. We pray these things and ask for your help. I ask for your help. That the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be a pleasing sacrifice to you. In Jesus' name. And we said... Amen. Let's look at the priority of brotherhood. Romans 14, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So the first question that might have come to your mind there is, why is Paul making such a big deal out of food and meat? This chapter does include drinking wine. Now, keep in mind, both those items had been used in idol worship. Both those items, idol worship. And as well as special days, observing a feast or a holiday. Some did, some didn't. But you might be tempted to say, Paul, really? Eating meat, wine, days? That's a big sanctification issue? Yes. Why? Remember, number one, People need wisdom and direction on issues that are not explicitly dealt with in black and white in the Bible. Here's a big heads up. That's most of the issues you have to deal with today. The Bible was written in a time of antiquity. You look in the back of your Bible, in your concordance, you're not going to find the words internet, television. So how do you figure that out? You can't look for a black and white precept or command. It's not there. You have to apply general truths, what we call principles, patterns, practices, and put them into play. So we need that. Number two, Paul is a church planter. Remember, the first great theologian, early missionary of the church, he's big on this thing called church unity. Keeping a diverse community of faith together. Because people were fussing and fighting with each other over this stuff in the early church as they are today, over what to drink, eat, days to observe. And today, as I mentioned, it's 10,000 more issues, ranging from media, movies, body markings, sexuality, church styles, etc., etc. It's a tough one. So Paul has these two priorities in mind for us to keep in mind so we can kind of navigate through these conflicts. And the first one, again, is brotherhood. As Pastor Alex mentioned last time, love is the prime directive for the Christian. That began his whole teaching on this with the church in chapter 12. And when we're talking about love, let me again remind you of what we mean by love. Agape love, it's the primary love of God which expects us to love people in the same way, which simply means meeting needs or sacrificing to seek the benefit of another person, beginning with a brother and sister in the church. That could mean time, talents, treasure, yes. And in this context, it means preference of lifestyle. Preference in lifestyle. Look at the middle of verse 13 from last time. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. That was explained very well last time. Later on in verse 15, it says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's big. What that simply means is this. You are to prioritize and prefer love over liberty. Love trumps liberty. You sacrifice your freedom in Christ, the liberty to do certain things, sometimes for the benefit in love of a brother or sister in Christ. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians in the 8th chapter, which is the best, closest parallel text that we have to Romans 14. The issues are very similar. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, that whole section dealing with people, when you're trying to win them to Christ, and etc. And it says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, 
take care that this right of yours, whatever right that is, does not somehow become a stumbling block in the weak for anyone sees you. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? That's very interesting. That verse is saying, just for a quick detour, is saying what you do influences, impacts others. So what was happening was you had a, a brother in, an, in a temple, nearby a temple where idol worship had taken place, and he's, he's, not, he's not worshiping the idol. He's a Christian, but he's eating the meat that had been worshipped there, used as a worship sacrifice. He's eating the meat maybe because it's cheaper, it's better. Historically, we hear that was the case. But you've got a weaker brother watching that saying, whoa, you're in here eating meat offered to idols? Really? Wasn't that just being prayed over and sacrificed and worshipped? And so that's an issue, verse 11. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. So by the knowledge, what knowledge? The knowledge is this, there's no such thing as an idol. It's a false god. It doesn't exist. Why not eat the meat? The stronger brother has that knowledge, right? Partaking of liberty. But verse 11 saying, by that knowledge... You've just destroyed the brother whom Christ died for. Wow. Verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Underline that. You sin against a brother's conscience? You, you help destroy a brother's conscience or sister? Not purposely, perhaps. But if you do, you're sinning against Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And that means I'll never eat meat like he's not going to go vegan. It means that he's never going to eat in that way, in that particular place again before that brother. See, this is important. Love does not make a brother stumble. The primary focus of Christian liberty is not on ourselves, not even as stronger brothers and sisters, which many of you are from time to time. You got freedom, yes, but exercising freedom is not always the main thing because we don't want, it says there, destroy the work of God. What is he referring to there? To destroy from the original Greek language has the idea of tearing apart, kind of violent. But it also has a kind of a nuanced meaning to deprive someone of success, of growing, getting ahead. The work of God is the sanctification, the maturity of a brother or sister in grace, knowledge, wisdom of God. That's God's work that we're talking about. It's not destruction like they're going to lose their salvation. It's not that sense like some other commentators on this have said. No, the Bible doesn't teach that someone can lose their salvation far less because they stumbled over their conscience. That's not it. The issue is about building up somebody's faith, not tearing it down. It means practically this. When you're with your brother or sister, you're free to listen to something, watch something, eat or drink something, talk about doing something. If it can offend that brother and it could hurt their conscience, you abstain from that. You don't do it. Because due to that relationship that you have, you're knowing it could hurt them. If you lead them to do it against their conscience, it could lead them to sin. That's Christian brotherhood. So the thought continues in the text, verse 21. It is not good. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And that word stumble again, same root as the word stumble in verse 20, but it's a little bit different. Here it has the idea of making somebody weak. And it would use this metaphor of, you can see, stumbling block, you don't see something and you oh, trip. And you know that can hurt. As I was jogging in my neighborhood, several of you know, a couple of months ago, I thought I was jogging in the park on a lovely day. I didn't see this humongous tree trunk covered by mulch, and I tripped, fell, and I think I probably fractured a couple of ribs. So stumbling, what's the lesson? Stumbling can hurt, literally and physically. So it can be right from the original language, it can be an excellent thing to abstain from doing something you're free to do. Why? Because you could become a stumbling block. 
And the word stumbling block also has another metaphor that, that pictures with it. It would be used to describe a trap. You've seen animals caught in a trap. Stumbling block can be that as well. It can trap someone into doing something that they don't want to do really. The idea is this. Your brother or sister comes first. That's the priority. To pull that off, you really have to have a heart of unselfishness rather than selfishness. Because you're putting somebody before your wants and desires. Here's the key. You don't have to eat or drink or do whatever it is you're contemplating if it's not for the right reason. You're not in bondage to do any of these things you're free to do. I hope not, because if you're in bondage to do something because you're free to do it and you're in bondage, that's, telling, that's a red flag right there. Freedom, remember, is always regulated to some degree or another. It's never 100%, because we can't handle that. Freedom's only a good thing when it's enjoyed responsibly and there's accountability that goes with it. So freedom's a right, can be a right, but it's not a GPS for lifestyle choices. You don't do something just because you can. Don't get caught in that trap, literally. In fact, verse 17, go back, kind of reminds us where our priorities are here when it comes to the gray issues of life we're talking about, where it says there, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, eating and drinking is a, is a freedom, is a liberty. He's saying, life's not about freedom and liberties. You, you get them, it's great, but life's not about that. What's the priority? Peace and joy and righteousness, Christ-likeness in the Holy Spirit. So Christians, this is a big idea. There are things, you have to understand, there are things that you can do that you don't have to do just because you can. Also, you don't have to flaunt your freedom either. There are some people that do that. That can happen to an arrogant, stronger brother. So think more not about what you can do, which is freedom, but think about what you should do, which is love. Don't be one of those Christians that takes the attitude. This is very prevalent today in our society and in the church. Well, I can do this because the Bible doesn't say I can't. It doesn't prohibit it. That's weak. That really is. If you enjoy, for instance, alcohol in moderation, good, fine. That's your business. But offending others and potentially leading someone who can't handle that to take it up by your influence, I would argue is unwise at best, sinful at worst. It's really bad. I mean, and, and I'll ask you, would you want that stumbling block to be on your conscience? That offense that you've caused to live with that? I know people that have done that. They've influenced someone out of selfishness to do something they didn't really want to do, and they wound up becoming addicted to it. They played a role in that. Rights are laid down for love. Let me repeat that. Rights are laid down for love. Illustration. I've used this before. Some of you may not have heard it. Two brothers are invited to dinner of an unbeliever. They've been witnessing to him for some time, sowing a seed of salvation, gospel. Maybe they're on the who's your one list. And the guy's an unbeliever, and he's making steak. And uh, some of you will appreciate the steak analogy. And he says... Uh, what kind of bottle of wine? I got three do you want? I got rosé, I got burgundy, I got white. You know, burgundy goes good with steak. Which one do you want? Problem is you got two brothers there. One's a stronger brother, one's a weaker one. And the stronger brother wants, knows he can drink socially, responsibly, moderately, not to excess. He wants to enjoy that freedom. He wants to accept the hospitality of that host. They're trying to win him to Christ. Don't want to cause a needless offense there. So he's thinking that's fine, right? Verse 20 says, all things are indeed clean, meaning they're morally, not ceremonially, but they're morally pure. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves. That's pure, okay. It's not something prohibited in black and white, obviously. But then you have the other brother. The other brother is weaker. 
maybe on this issue, they're very scrupulous in conscience on alcohol. And you know people like this. Maybe they've come out of that lifestyle where there was an addiction. There was a DUI issue, perhaps, a family issue. Maybe nothing more than an intellectual conviction comes to some people. They study the issue. He's weighed the risks, the dangers that are inherent to a degree in that substance. And he says, no, not for me. And it's such a strong conviction for him to the point he may think no Christian should drink. Now it gets a little thick. But it's a gray issue in Scripture, and it is. I will tell you, there are plenty of warnings about alcohol in Scripture. You can read them in Proverbs 20, Proverbs 23, chapter 31. Drunkenness is obviously a sin. That should be a no-brainer. Okay? But there are no specific texts explicitly that condemn or prohibit the consumption of alcohol in all cases. What we would call wine or strong drink in the Bible. In fact, it's described as a blessing in several Old Testament texts. So what do you do with that? This is one of the biggest issues on the table we're dealing with today. And I appreciate Pastor Alex didn't dodge this and took this on last week, and we continue to talk about it today to help you through this. Because you have a weaker brother next to you. And so the other part of verse 20 might kick in here, where it says it's wrong, literally it's evil, for anyone to make another stumble cause offense, cause to sin, what he eats. See, the conscience of a weaker Christian is more important than your individual freedom. If you're a stronger Christian, and it's important to send out the right gospel message, not a mixed one. Send the right message. Go back to 1 Corinthians now in chapter 10 instead of 8. I'm going to show you where I got my little story from. That little story about the two guys trying to win the unbeliever to Christ and stronger, weaker brother, it's actually found here. 1 Corinthians 10, and starts in verse 27, and just follow me. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any ground, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Stop right there. This is where we're at. Two guys are invited over. Two gals are invited over, and one of them or both of them says, we can do this. We're free in Christ to do this so far. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. That is an imperative command for the sake of the one who informed you, and here it is, for the sake of conscience. And it says, I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should, and then he goes rhetorical, asking the question that many of you would right away ask as a follow-up, hey, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So that's the question, that's not fair. I'm free to do this. My conscience, I'm the stronger brother. I'm free to do this. Why do I have to worry about this weaker brother's conscience? That's not fair. I can't practice my liberty. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So he's continuing with that line of questioning. And then verse 31 is very interesting. It's like the determining verse here. We brought it up two weeks ago here in chapter 14. It's all about the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Give no offense, verse 32, to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Back to the offense, stumbling block, conscience of the weaker brother. Here's the conclusion of that little story. It's better to offend an unbeliever than a fellow believer because we're talking about the priority of brotherhood. How would it be for that unbelieving host to see the stronger and weaker brother go at it, one throwing the other under the bus over freedom to drink something. What kind of gospel message would that be? So instead, Paul's saying, send the right gospel message. Your brother or sister in Christ is more important than that unbeliever you're even trying to win to Christ. Pretty heavy. 
priority of conscience. Let's talk about that. Verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he affirms or approves. See, now the first half of the verse is kind of affirming in a way the position of the weaker brother to always have them in mind first. In fact, the New Living Translations, a modern paraphrase here, would say, you may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And that's true. Could be. But keep it between yourself and God. In other words, keep the freedom that you're exercising. You may have to keep it a private issue in some cases. Doesn't have to be public, particularly on sensitive issues like this. I know more than one brother friends of mine that got tattoos, which is another big issue on this today, prior to coming to Christ. Then they came to Christ. They no longer wanted them, but then again, that's part of the problem with tattoos. They didn't want to rip their skin to flesh and, and all of that. So, But they became aware of the sensitivity of this issue. And to protect others in their conscience, they cover themselves up. They cover those things up. What they're doing is they're thinking of the weaker brother. They don't want to be a stumbling block. Second half, though, of the verse affirms the position of the stronger brother. See, Paul doesn't play favorites. Same paraphrase would say, don't feel guilty for doing something you have decided is right. You know how you shouldn't judge the conviction of your brother or sister? Here is don't judge your own conviction, your own conscience, and that's important. You don't have to sacrifice your convictions at the altar of love. Paul's not suggesting out of this priority of brotherhood and conscience that you give up your convictions or your feelings on these freedoms. What you're sacrificing is how they are expressed, what you do with them. Not that you have these freedoms and convictions. What do you do with them? You sacrifice certain liberties not for the conviction, but not for the conviction of conscience to have them. Hold to the conviction. You think it's right? Scripture doesn't forbid it? You're probably right. You just don't have to lord it over anybody. Just like 1 John 3.21 would say, in other words, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Your heart doesn't condemn you and judge you. You're good. Don't beat yourself up over your convictions. Enjoy them when you can, because this verse has said you've already approved. That literally from the Greek has the idea of testing something. You've deemed it worthy of doing it if, if you've done your homework, sought the Lord in, in the Word, prayer, wise counsel from the body. We're talking again the means of grace. And so remember the parallel, the intersection picture I used a couple of weeks ago. If your traffic light reads green, go. Go through the light. Enjoy the ride. Just don't take or force the weak driver or rider along with you. Don't be a stumbling block. Which leads to the consequence, the final verse of the passage, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's massive, a massive truth that you need to memorize, understand, and apply. It's, it's about the power of conscience, the need for Christians to act upon, live with a clear conscience. Because Paul is arguing conscience is a massive priority. Let's talk about what that is again. You've heard it talked about before. We'll remind you again, conscience in English, it's an interesting word. It's a two-part word. The prefix is con, which means with. The second part, the suffix is knowledge, science, conscience. Conscience is actually conscience. And in the Greek, so you're acting with knowledge. In the Greek, it's talking about the soul, the heart, that can discern what is morally good and bad for us. In fact... You might remember Romans way back, chapter 2, said your conscience will either accuse you or excuse your behavior. One or the other. Someone once said, conscience is the inner voice that warns us that someone may be looking. I like that. That's pretty good. 
It's God's gift to us. We said every human being, believer or not, gets one. So there's lots of ways of thinking about your conscience. Think about it's our moral nervous system. You know, you have a nervous system that acts up when you're in pain. You know, if you put your hand accidentally on the burner on the oven, it's ah, hot. You take it off, it's pain. Therefore, I don't want to do that again because that'll be painful. That's how your conscience works in terms of your heart. So what it's saying is, oh, another analogy I just thought of, my car. We got this car about a year ago, and it's got those sensors that beep like crazy. It makes this really obnoxious noise when you're backing up or you're like on the side and someone's coming close to you. Beep, beep. I hate that. But you know what? It's really helpful. It can be really, really helpful, especially when you're backing up, right? Well, you know what Paul's saying? That warning, that beeping sound in your heart, which is your conscience, it's worse to ignore that than ignore the beeping sound in your car that can help prevent a crash. Don't ignore your conscience, whether you're a stronger or weaker brother or sister. So if you doubt, verse 23, if you doubt or you waver on a decision, on what to do, and you're teeter-tottering, you're constantly wrestling with it, I think Paul's saying this, don't do it, and don't push or pressure someone like that to do it, because he who hesitates is what? Lost. You don't want to hesitate. In verse 5 of this chapter, it says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that was about observing a day. You have to be fully persuaded in your mind and your heart before you decide to do something. As close as you can get to that, because what's the result if you don't? It says you're condemned. You're condemning yourself. You're judging yourself guilty. Right? And, and it can work in the smallest ways. Give you another small illustration. So last weekend we were in Disney World and we were with the family and we went through the tragic kingdom and then went to the animal kingdom. And it uh, wasn't so tragic this time, interestingly enough. But at the animal kingdom, I think it was that park where there's uh, a couple of rides that are a little hairy for me. In fact, at the other park, Hollywood Studios, I actually conquered and survived the rock and roller coaster, which I was not predisposed to do. This is what it has to do with conscience. I wavered on that. Why? Because the time before when I went with Brianna, all right, I, I did it against better judgment, and afterward I wanted to blow bagels, and I wasn't feeling great. So this time I'm like, what do I do? And they were kind of in love saying, go for it. You can do it, Dad. This is fun. It's fast, but it's kind of straight. You can do it. And I did it. And I got off, and I didn't feel that bad. I, I didn't feel great, but I didn't feel bad. <laughs> I didn't feel sick. But then we get to the other park, and it's Mount Everest. And this thing climbs up to the top and has this drop. And let me tell you, I wasn't ignoring conscience that second time. Because I said, nope. Not getting on that. Not going to do that. And thankfully, they respected that decision. Mom stayed with me, and we watched. watched the, you know, the kids did it, came down, and it was all great. But just in a little thing like that, you understand conscience is at play. It's that still small voice. Amen, brother. That little, that little word, that little word is telling you, do it. Don't do it. I'm not sure. What do I do? Exactly. The idea from Paul is the weaker brother or sister especially has to be careful not to violate their conscience because you may do something for all the wrong reasons. Think of it. Why do we do the things we do? Peer pressure. I just want to fit in. Want to be popular. And Paul's saying if that's why you're doing what you're thinking of doing, you may be in sin because you're not walking with the Spirit by faith there. So you may be going through a light at an intersection, waiting for it to be green. You're thinking it's green when really it's flashing yellow at you or it's giving you the red. Stop. And you're running that light. So if you're in serious doubt about doing something, take this home. Unsure of whether it's right or wrong for you, for you, then it's essentially wrong according to this text, regardless of what somebody else is doing. If you believe doing is something if doing a particular thing, if you believe it's wrong and you do it anyway, 
then it was wrong and you sinned. And worse, you hurt your conscience in the process. So what does faith have to do with this? Because it says, if it's not done from faith, it's sin. How is it sinful to lack faith in a decision? Well, basically, faith equals trust. So you're sinning when you're not trusting God and not trusting the Bible-fed conscience he's given you to make a decision. That's how we discern. You're lacking faith in your decision-making. That's how it's sinful. And you know what's fascinating about this issue? Because I've been wrestling with this stuff for a while. I've been studying this issue of discernment, wisdom, Christian ethics, grace stuff for a while. And this is what I've come to find. What a surprise. God loves diversity within us. As such, in a church family, that a certain behavior or choice can be black and white for you, and it can be gray for me. You can be a stronger brother on an issue. I can be the weaker on the next issue. I'm the stronger brother. You're the weaker brother or sister. So it can be what's right for you may be wrong for someone else. What's wrong for you could be right for the other. That makes our job a little tougher. But you know what? We're uniquely and wonderfully made. But we're also made to love and fellowship with each other. And that can only work if we extend grace with one another on these kinds of issues. So here's a big practical principle to build love and unity in the church. You ready? Major in the majors, minor in the minors. We're going to do a little theological triage here, as Al Mohler puts it. You have to be able to think and study what is an issue that is a core critical issue that you're not going to compromise on. What is a hill to die on, to use the military analogy? Theologically, doctrinally, it's easier to talk about that. I'll give you an example. You're talking to someone sharing your faith, and they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the scriptures, the atonement that forgives sins from Christ. Those are hills to die on. You never compromise on that. Someone tells you you're wrong, you say, I, okay, fine, you can say that. I think you're wrong. And that's it. We're not going further. That is what we call a, a brick wall issue. It's a primary issue. Brick wall means, think of it, the Berlin Wall was just being celebrated, its anniversary having been pulled down this past week. And that wall went up. It's a wall of separation. So that means on this issue, we separate. We actually can't even fellowship in the same way over these kinds of issues. Secondary one, we call a picket fence issue. Picket fence. It's not so critical. Think about a picket fence. We don't have those much anymore, but you see a fence in a yard, and you talk with a neighbor over a fence. You can even peek up over the fence and talk to them. So there's a little dialogue. There's, there's a little bit of fellowship there, but there's a little degree of separation. And you have to think about what issues fall into that category, because you know what triage is. That's what we're doing, right? In the emergency department, they assess someone's condition, and they prioritize it. This person needs to be worked on more than the other. And that's what we're doing here theologically with these ethical issues. Third, you might say is a tertiary third issue. It's a dinner table issue. Dinner table is everything's out on the table. You're having dinner. You can talk about all these different issues, doctrine, theology, ethics, politics, church, whatever, and you just agree to disagree at the end of the day because they have that lower-level, tertiary priority. They're not hills to die on, okay? An example would be the end times, and then we'll be done with this. The second coming. That's a big one. Eschatological. Jesus is going to return on the day of the Lord, and he's going to bring judgment. When it comes to that doctrine, that fact is essential. That's central. That's a hill to die on. It's primary. It's a brick wall. However, the timing of it, the details of it. When is he coming? What's it going to look like? All those things are gray, non-essential, secondary, tertiary issues. That's a picket fence or it's a dinner table conversation. I'm premillennial. I'm postmillennial. I'm millennial. I'm all three. You know, all of that is dinner table stuff. That's not a hill to die on. And I like the way our leadership on that particular issue, that's how we feel about it here. We have our preferences. We, we have our teaching. We think it's like this, but we know 
There's equivocation and some gray on that in terms of the timing and what it looks like. So we let you and your conscience follow that. In fact, I want to give you here even more practical application now that we went through that and showing you how a gray area becomes black and white for you. This is so key because you might be thinking, okay, all these principles are really good, but like, how do they pertain to me? What do I do with someone? When I'm dealing with someone on one of these neutral, disputable opinions, right? How do I make my light go from red to green so I can go? Listen, again, think about conscience. It's not an infallible guide, but it's a powerful thing in making good, godly, wise decisions. If your conscience is fed right, I want to say that again. It means if you're Christ conscious, you're going to have a good conscience. Christ conscious, good, godly conscience. Remember I told you your conscience is like a PC, right? A computer. Everyone gets one. Your conscience is a hard drive. Your hard drive only works as well as the software. The software is the word of the living God. And it's God-given conscience. But if you don't have that updated software, remember, if you doubt, doubt means don't. Don't do it. So, verse 19. By the way, on some of these issues, you may adjust your thinking with wisdom. You have to be open and humble to that. You may go from weaker brother to stronger brother. Look at verse 19. Let us, pause, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, growing in faith and in knowledge. But we want to try to discern what is God's will for you in, blank and, in black and white. All right? So here I want to give you four principles on how to find God's will for your life or turning gray to black and white. If you don't take notes, this would be a real good opportunity to do that. Unless you can remember all of this. And I'm going to give you some scripture. So, okay, Pastor Bernie, alcohol, tattoos, vaping, um, this movie, that movie. Number one, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. The first phrase, everything is permissible for me, means anything that's not in black and white, prohibited, therefore, is permissible. It's gray. It's of dispute. It's of opinion. It's preference. So ask yourself this question based on what Paul just said. Is doing what I'm thinking of doing helpful for me? Is it going to be helpful to me to grow physically, spiritually, and mentally? Filter that idea of what it is you want to do through that question. Number two, same verse goes on. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Your translation could, see, could say held in bondage. Question number two, does it bring me under its power? Big one, big one. That would solve a lot of ethical dilemmas if people were more careful with this. Is what I'm doing, could it lead me to become addicted to it? Can't let it go. That will often lead you to say no. Is it permissible? Yes, I can do it. I'm free in Christ. But could it lead me in bondage? Then for me, that gray became black and white. The answer is no. Question three, and we've been dealing with this. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall in sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. That's verses 21 to 23, 1 Corinthians 8, 13. So the big question here is simple. Is what I'm going to decide to do going to hurt others? Will it hurt somebody else? Will I be a stumbling block, which we have learned the last two weeks, is sin. Love regulates liberty. Liberty is restricted by love. Finally, number four. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the what? This would clarify tons of ethical issues from people and take them from gray to black and white. Does it glorify God? 
Is my decision going to make much of God and show and share him to others? Or is it really just about me and what I want to do? Does it glorify God? And when in doubt here, if you're wrestling with these issues and these questions, and you've got this Bible-fed conscience, let your conscience be your guide here. And after all that, you ask these four questions, heads up. If you ask all these four questions and you're still in doubt, don't do it. Paul said it, verse 23. It's going to be a sin if you do. It's not done in faith. I still don't know what to do. Don't do it. Because then you won't be able to trust your conscience down the road. Conscience is huge in the Christian life, is it not? I close with this little story. I haven't told it in a while. There was an early morning crash of a Brinks armored truck on a Miami highway back in January of 1996. And I remember this event because it really held up a mirror, I think, for me to our nation culture. There's a driver and a fellow Brinks officer in this crash. He was laying there bruised and he was bleeding. And this festive atmosphere broke out around the truck because thousands of dollars started to blow in the breeze. And there were motorists that stopped in rush hour traffic. And they started scooping up the trash before they went back in their car to they, the cash, actually, not the trash, before driving to the office. And so you got these thousands of crisp bills, shiny coins. They're just raining down from this overpass into this Miami neighborhood. They're mothers with babies. Mothers with babies, and they were grabbing coins and piling them into their strollers. Elderly woman filled a box. A young schoolgirl dumped out her book bag, threw all that out, loaded it with coins and bills. And onlookers, these participants, they were interviewed by the Miami Herald, I think it was at the time. They had all these kind of justifications and rationalizations for what they did. One resident said, which is more moral? This is a poor neighborhood. Return the money and leave your child impoverished or maybe send them to college and enrich the family for generations. What do you do? He said, another one said, we deserve a little something. Another said, the Lord was willing for it to happen here. There's a lot of poverty. It was a miracle. Police estimated more than 100 people helped themselves to the money during that melee I mean, does that shock you to hear something like this? It does in a way, but you know, it, it shouldn't because what happened in Miami happens every day. It's born out of a cultural drift that we have ethically where our conscience no longer can discern what's morally right or wrong to do in a situation. We're, un, we're less willing to live by a moral code. And we reward sometimes rule breakers and we ridicule those that live more. So it says a lot about us, more than we care to think about. But there were some heroes, listen to this, on that day in Miami, because several people came forward and turned money over to the authorities. Faye said this, I have children, and I needed to set a good example. Ah. She's a mother who earns minimum wage at a department store. She said it was important for me to do what I felt was right. It's conscience. Herbert was 11 years old, came forward after his teacher at his elementary school had lectured students about making the right decisions. He goes to police with how much money he returned? 85 cents. What did he say? I knew it was wrong for me to keep anything, he told the TV reporter, and I knew if I kept it, I would have been stealing. Just let that illuminate the rest of it all conscience. That's how it works. Manny was a firefighter. He recovered a bag containing $330,000 in cash. He summed it up pretty well. He said, quote, people were almost killed in that truck and people are calling it a blessing from God. That wasn't a blessing. It was a test. The rich, the poor, the middle class, everybody should have a conscience. Christians should pray for the love of the church and we should pray that brotherhood and priority, the priority of brotherhood and of conscience will direct us. 
in everything that we think, say, and do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, so much of this was directed for the believers in this room, and appropriately so. We pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit will do a great work of application, of direction, and of guidance as we walk day to day making these decisions on what it is that we're going to do, not to do, when we talk about our freedom in Christ and Christian liberty. Lord, I pray for these believers in this room, sons of God, children of God, Lord, that we would believe you and all that you say through your word, and as you, Lord Jesus, in your high priestly prayer, prayed in the garden to the Father, I pray we would all be one. We would be unified amidst our diversity. We would also be in you so that the world would believe that you sent us into the world. Lord, for the unbelievers that may be in this room and listening, I ask if they stumbled over a stumbling stone. In other words, are they about religion more than relationship with the stone, the cornerstone that's Jesus Christ? Don't stumble over Christ. You can't begin to understand and please Jesus with the decisions you make in your life person listening, you cannot begin to know the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord, until you know the Lord relationally. So I pray someone today will come to Christ. They will want to make a turn from their old sinful, selfish ways and how they've been living. They feel that that void in their heart. They understand that their supposed self-righteousness and morality isn't enough to satisfy you, Lord. They know because of the guilt and the shame brought about by the conscience you've given them, they know they can't be right with you. So may they be right with you today by turning to you, by trusting in Jesus alone, just by the faith alone, by your grace alone, to believe that Jesus, God in the flesh, died to forgive them of their sins and was punished for that. So they wouldn't have to be forever, Lord. May you do that work in hearts today as only you can. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 